to it. Well, this morning, we are going to begin a new series in the book of Zechariah. I know you're thinking, where in the world is Zechariah? Well, it's over in the Minor Prophets. So get past Daniel and just keep going. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah. Did you got that? You memorized that as I said that, right? So just keep flipping or go to the front of your Bible. There's an index there. You'll be able to find this book. Haggai's a little harder because it's only a couple chapters. But there's 14 chapters in Zechariah. So you should be able to stumble into it someplace. Now it is not going to be my purpose in this series to give a detailed exposition of the whole book. Uh, for those interested in that kind of study, I'll recommend a couple books. Uh, one a little more classic, Charles L. Feinberg's uh, commentary on it. God Remembers, a study of the book of Zechariah. Uh, and then uh, MacArthur has started his uh, Old Testament commentary series. And the very first book in it is Zechariah. And I was able to get a pre-publication copy uh, of it. Now Feinberg um, is... Uh, it is a commentary that is more academic. So he's going to deal with what other commentators said and arguments back and forth of how to interpret the text. MacArthur is a pastor, and so it is more pastoral. He'll still deal with a lot of the issues, but it's more of what are the parallel passages and how are we going to apply the truths within this text in our own lives. And so both are uh, very good uh, and good encouragement to you to understand all the nuances in this book. My purpose and focus of these sermons is really on presenting Zechariah's relationship as an understanding of the prophetic future. That foundation needs to be laid if we're going to understand the book of Revelation, which we will get into at some point in the future. I'm not going to say when because things keep getting added into our schedule. Um, but we maybe by summer sometime we're going to get in Revelation. But if I don't understand the Old Testament prophets, I cannot understand Revelation. It is based on the promises already given. A lot more detail in there. So the prophecies of Zechariah then give us this important detail about what is going to be coming in the future, which the book of Revelation gives even more detail about. And so they're parallel in their prophecies. And these are things that are going to be uh, preceding uh, Christ's reign on David's throne. Now, in order to understand Zechariah, we have to be able to have an understanding of the historical context. And so I'm going to begin with that this morning. We'll get a, a kind of a brief overview of the book. And then I'm going to explain as many of the initial uh, visions that Zechariah had as time allows. Now, the book of Zechariah begins with a time reference. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. And you know exactly when that is, right? Yeah, right. Okay, because it brings up a question. Why would you start a book with a time reference to that detail? Obviously, it must be important. That's the emphatic position. And then where does this actually fit within the sequence of all the stuff that's in the Old Testament? Now, in my sermon a few weeks ago, I pointed out the blessings and curse of the Mosaic Covenant, especially in Deuteronomy 27 28, 29, and 30. The Israelites, if they would walk with God, be obedient to him, were going to be blessed. If they did not, there were increasing curses upon them. 
And then chapter 30 is a book of restoration. Regardless of what they do or don't do, there is eventually going to be a restoration of a remnant of them. Well, among the curses, it eventually gets to other nations conquering them and then finally being deported, taken away from the land, taken to other nations. And the history of Israel demonstrates God's faithfulness to those promises because that's what happened. And yet, again, chapter 30 is God would remember them. There would be a restoration so let's give a quick history of Israel after the Exodus. So Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt, where they had gone to at the time of uh, Joseph. And as they're getting close to this promised land, Joshua has taken over. He crosses the Jordan River, and the conquest begins. That's in 1405 B.C. There is a quick succession of victories except for the loss at Ai due to Achan's sin. After that, they conquered the land uh, as God had said. And the theocratic nation, because it really was God was king, did very well under Joshua and the elders that had served with him. The next generation forgot. And so you enter into the cycle that is expressed in the book of Judges. It is a cycle of disobedience, then oppression, and then repentance, and then deliverance by God through some judge that he would appoint. And that same cycle of the judges then continues on once the kingdom is established under Saul, except now it's going to be more related toward the character of the king than just the people themselves because the king would lead them either toward God or away from God. Now, the zenith of blessings of the nation was under King David in the early years of Solomon's reign. So now we're to about, uh, David is anointed king in 1011 B.C., and that goes through the first part of uh, Solomon's reign. Uh, his reign ended in 930 B.C. because we had the building of the temple. That was from 966 to 959 B.C., and then the nation's borders reached their maximum extent. That was the greatest blessing that there was. And there's all these references keep going back to that time period. This is what it was because the people actually were walking with God. However, Solomon's heart was turned away from God by his many foreign wives and the kingdom split after his death in 930 B.C. Under his son Rehoboam, the ten tribes of the north rebelled. That became the nation of Israel. Two tribes remained plus the Levites, loyal to uh, David's uh, lineage, and that became Judah. Now, the ten tribes in the north never had a good king. Not one. All were evil. Some were evil than others, but all were evil. And so there's prophets who come and warn them, uh, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, and they don't listen. And so finally it descends the point that in 722 B.C., Assyria has been attacking it, and they conquer it, and they deport the people. Northern tribes, the ten tribes, they're gone. Israel is no more. Now Judah, the southern kingdom, had a mixture of good and evil kings. But rebellion against God eventually resulted in them being conquered by Babylon in 605 B.C. and the first deportation. The rebellion of King Jehoiakim, who was now under 
uh, Babylon's rule, a puppet king in some ways, uh, rebelled and so Babylon came back, conquered them again. That was 598 BC. Additional deportations. Twelve years later, Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar again. You think by the second time they would have gotten this, this is not what God wants. This time Nebuchadnezzar returned and he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and deported all but a very small remnant of the poorest of Jews. They were left under the authority of Governor Gedaliah, but even then they still wouldn't listen and they murdered Gedaliah and that small remnant fled to Egypt, dragging Jeremiah the prophet with them. How many prophets? Isaiah, Amos, Micah, Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, they all warned about what's going to happen in the long term they were ignored and so God kept his promises and judgment was executed. Now Jeremiah 25 11 through 13 records the revelation given to the prophet concerning the future of Babylon. Let me read that for you. Jeremiah 25 11. This whole land will be a waste place and an object of horror and that's referring to uh, the nation of Judah and the surrounding nations. Uh, be a waste place, an object of hoarder. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are fulfilled that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation declares Yahweh. For their iniquity, even the land of the Chaldeans, I'll make it an everlasting desolation. I'll bring upon that land all my words which I have spoken against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied against the nations. Then a couple chapters later, Jeremiah 29, 10 and through 12, he adds this. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years have been fulfilled for Babylon, I will visit you and establish my good word to you and return you to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for peace and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. That was the prophecy that Daniel was reading that prompted his prayer recorded in Daniel 9. Now it's prophesied in Isaiah 44, 28 and 45, 1, Cyrus the Great, he's the king of Medo-Persia, he conquered Babylon in 538 B.C. He issues a decree, it's recorded in Ezra 1, that allows the Jews that so desired to return back to Jerusalem and specifically to rebuild the temple. So that prophesied hundreds of years beforehand by name and Cyrus does exactly that. They return to the land and rebuild and start rebuilding the temple. There's some variation, the commentators is back exactly which year they start, 538, 537, or 536, but they began work. Now how many returned? Well it's actually recorded for us. 42,360 returned of their free will. 7,337 slaves were brought. Maybe they wanted to go, maybe they didn't, they didn't have a choice. And then for some reason there's 200 singers that are added into that. I'm not sure why they're kind of more equated with the slaves than not, I don't know. Maybe you people who sing can tell me something about that, I don't know. It's musical enslavement, I don't know. They just they had to have a place to sing and there's where we're gonna go. I don't know. But they're separated out. If you add it all up, there's 49,897 individuals that return. That's it. It had been a nation of millions. 
and that's all that return. Where's everybody else? Well, in 10 kings that were torn by Assyria, they basically stayed in those lands. And it wasn't until 1948 when they were kicked out with the formation of the nation of Israel, they had remained in those same lands all throughout uh, the Middle East, Iran, Persia, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. They were spread all through there. And a lot remained in Babylon. They get back and worship begins very quickly after they get back. They start worshiping in the area where the temple was. That would be the seventh month, which would be fall. And then work on the foundation of the temple begins the next spring. That's the second month. That would be 535 B.C. Work only progresses to repairing the foundation when opposition by the people who are in the land, it was a mixture of Jews who were poor and uh, people that Assyria had brought back in from other nations, they mixed together and they became the Samaritans. They were not allowed to help with the rebuilding of the temple and so they hindered the work, even hiring counselors to frustrate it, and so the work stopped. And it stopped all the rest of the days of King Cyrus's reign, according to Ezra 4. It also stopped during the whole reign of Cambyses through 522 B.C. And it's not until the reign of Darius I, Hystapsis, uh, uh, that's 522 to 586 B.C., some 14 years later that the work resumes. So there's this long hiatus. It then resumes under the encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. That's where our time reference comes in. The eighth month of the second year of Darius. So now you kind of rough idea of where this fits in historically. It's November 520 B.C. when he begins his writing. Now Haggai precedes Zechariah. He had given a message two months prior to this in which he rebuked the people for their complacency. They ended up, because of the hindrances of rebuilding the temple, they finally kind of gave up on it and they focused on rebuilding their own homes and striving to be prosperous. Haggai points out to them that they were in fact not prosperous. Why? Because Yahweh's against them. You're not doing what I <laughs> called you to do. You're not working on my temple. Instead, you're just working for yourselves. And so you strive to be prosperous and you gather a crop and only half of it's left, or only a tenth of it's left. You keep striving and nothing is being successful. It's because Yahweh is against them. Well, with the coming of Haggai, Yahweh stirs up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. So the work resumes just 23 days after Haggai's first challenge to them. A month after that, Haggai gives a second message that Yahweh is encouraging Zerubbabel and Joshua, but also a reminder, you were striving for prosperity. You don't have it because you weren't obeying me. Now that you're beginning to work on the temple, I am going to prosper you. I will bless you now. It is the very next month that Zechariah gives his first message, and it is a call to return to Yahweh, to return to him, to walk with him. Haggai then gives a third message the next month, reminding the people again, they've not prospered because Yahweh is against them, but now they're building a temple, he is going to prosper them. In fact, his last message came three days later 
telling Zerubbabel that, that Yahweh was going to shake the nations, overthrowing those kingdoms and their strength, but he had chosen Zerubbabel to make him like a signet ring. That's Haggai chapter 2. Two months after that, Zechariah receives visions, eight visions in one night, and they're all meant to encourage Zerubbabel and Joshua about what Yahweh is going to do both in the immediate future and the distant future because he remembers. So in short, Zechariah is a series of prophecies set in the immediate context of encouraging Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest in resuming the work of rebuilding the temple after a hiatus of 14 years or more. All this because Osiris' decree prophesied hundreds of years before that this was to happen. So a lot of prophecies being fulfilled and new prophecies being given. Now it should be noted that the date referencing in both Haggai and Zechariah is specifically related to the kingdoms of Persia, the kings of Persia, not anything Jewish. Why? Well, because it signifies that though the context here is focused on the Jewish nation rebuilding the temple, they are in the time of the Gentiles, as pointed out in Daniel 9, which we looked at some months ago. They are under Gentile domination, and yet God is still working in them and will work through them, regardless of what the political aspects around them are. Now let me just take an aside here quickly for ourselves. It doesn't matter what goes on politically this year. Not ultimately. Okay? Now, of course, we're very concerned about it, and we should be, and we should be active in trying to get it to shift towards something that's godly. But regardless of what happens outside, God is at work and always will be at work through his people for us to be lights shining in a very dark world. And so a lot of the things that are going to be said here do apply to us. Don't be discouraged. God remembers. He isn't lost. He hasn't died as was claimed in the 60s that God is dead. He is still active. He is still in control. He knows exactly what he's doing, even if we don't understand the immediate stuff that's going on, okay? We don't have to. We just have to be faithful. These are constant messages we'll see throughout the book of Zechariah. Now, the author of the book, as stated in the very first verse, is Zechariah the prophet the son of Bechariah, the son of Ido. He's of a priestly lineage. His grandfather is listed in Nehemiah 12.4 as among those who returned with Zerubbabel in the initial return to Babylon to Jerusalem. In Nehemiah 12.16, he is listed as the successor to his grandfather, Ido, during the days of Joachim. So apparently his dad, Bechariah, had died. So he was a young man at the beginning of this. Now, names in ancient times usually have significance. Sometimes we name our children hoping the name has significance and the child will have the character of the name we're giving to them. Uh, more recently, it just seems like a lot of names are just made up. I'm not sure what they mean. I have a curiosity. If I'm checking out and someone has a, an unusual name, I usually ask them, like, does this have any special meaning? Sometimes it does, and a lot of times they go, that's just what my parents called me. Oh, so the name is simply a label so we can identify you. But their names meant something. Guess what the name Zechariah actually means? He whom Yahweh remembers, or more simply, Yahweh remembers. 
That actually is the theme of the book. Yahweh remembers. It's a book of prophecies, a restoration of the nation, the temple, both in the near future and in the distant future. The nation's going to be restored, the temple's going to be rebuilt, but it's also looking to the distant future of Messiah coming and setting up his own kingdom. Eventually that establishment. His grandfather's name, Ido, comes from a word that means timely. That actually reflects another theme that goes through Zechariah. God's timing is always perfect. You may not understand it, but he knows exactly what he's doing and his timing is perfect. His father's name, Bechariah, means Yah blesses. Another theme that goes throughout the book that ultimately the nation is going to be blessed in the future, Messiah will reign. Other themes related to God remembering include Yahweh himself. He's mentioned uh, either by name or in a combination of the titles and stuff 133 times in just 14 chapters. There's the theme of repentance. There's the theme of the temple being rebuilt. There's the theme of Messiah within it and of Messiah's future kingdom. You can outline the book simply as uh, the first six verses as an exhortation to repentance. And then there are eight night visions. Uh, <clears throat> there are, there's a vision of horses, a vision of horns and smiths. Uh, there's a surveyor. There's Joshua and the angel. There's a candlestick and two olive trees. There's a flying scroll. Not a flying carpet, okay? A flying scroll. It's different. A woman and an epa and four chariots. And then it concludes with another vision of the coronation of Joshua. We're going to go over each of those, but it will be brief on each of them. Then there are, is a question and two answers. One's negative, one's positive. And then it concludes the last six chapters. Two burdensome oracles. The first three chapters deal with Messiah's first advent and rejection. And the second three deal with Messiah's second advent and acceptance. We're going to spend more time with those. Now the first message that Zechariah received from Yahweh could be considered the Old Testament equivalent of 1 Corinthians 10.11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. R look back in history, the examples of those who've gone before you, learn from them, and don't repeat what they've done. Let's look at the first six verses. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechai, the son of Ido, saying, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me, declares Yahweh of hosts, that I may return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets called out, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return now for your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares Yahweh. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, what I commanded my slaves, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they returned and said, as Yahweh of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so has he done with us. Now the truth of the statement that Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers is displayed in history. The magnitude of that wrath is shown in the destruction of Judah, Jerusalem, and the temple. The word for wrath here means vehement displeasure, almost to the extent of abhorrence. And the deportation desolated land, it 
desecrated and then destroyed the temple. It stopped the Levitical ministry and it enslaved the people that escaped being slaughtered. The preaching of many of the prophets, both prior to the deportation and after it, made it very clear that this was God's wrath and it came because of a multiplicity of sins by their fathers. The consequences directly according to the covenant God made with them and spelled out in the curses in Deuteronomy 27, 28, 29. Their disobedience brought it on. And so Zechariah reminds them of these things, pointing out in verse 4 that their fathers did not listen or give heed. We live in a time when so often churches are so focused on God's love that they want to make that overarching to everything and they seem to forget that God is holy. His love actually comes out of his holiness because his goal is to make you holy, not leave you in your sin. That actually wouldn't be love. And we forget that sin is going to bring consequences and God's wrath can be severe. We just need to look back into the examples before us, especially in the Old Testament, understand God is a holy God and you should be afraid to fall in his hands unless you have Christ as your advocate. That's actually caused a lot of bad counsel. We need to be careful. God is holy first and foremost. He's holy three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And everything comes out from that. The basics, uh, the meaning of holiness is to be separate from. He's different than we are. Do not read your own character or human characteristics into God. He's not like that. He is something completely other. And praise God he is. Thank you, Lord, that he is different than us. Otherwise, we would have no hope. But he is holy. And so his call here under Zechariah, the first one, is return to me that I might return to you. That is exactly what he had said in Deuteronomy 30. Let me read that section for you. It's Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3. It's the promise of restoration. So it will be when all these things have come upon you, that's all the blessings and the curses which I've set before you, And you cause these things to return to your heart in all the nations where Yahweh your God has banished you. And you return to Yahweh your God and listen to his voice with all your heart and soul. According to all that I am commanding you today, you and your sons, then Yahweh your God will return you from captivity, return his compassion on you. He will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. That's hope. Yes, your fathers were under God's judgment because they wouldn't obey. But if you return to me, it doesn't have to be that way for you. His blessings can come. God keeps his promises. And the people to whom Zechariah was speaking had already returned to land. Why? This is pointed out there in verse 6. After the deportation, there were those who returned with Yahweh agreeing that what God had done was right. It was a just punishment. And now they're seeking his mercy. Zechariah's call here to return actually parallels the two messages of Haggai given the previous two months. They would be in danger of the same curses if they walked the same path as their fathers instead of returning to the Lord. And that is emphasized by two rhetorical questions of verse 5 and then the statement beginning in verse 6. 
The first rhetorical question points out that God kept his word and statutes, which is why the fathers were either killed or deported. Where are they? They're dead or they're enslaved because God keeps his word. And then the second rhetorical question is a reminder, humans are mortal. We don't live forever. We only go so far, so even those that obeyed him, eventually you're going to find, reach physical death. And you're going to stand before God. Are you ready for that? Now, if you're righteous by Christ, then death is not something we fear. That's why I could do my dad's burial and actually have a mix of emotions. It is hard to do that. It's sad to do that. Uh, it gets very hard to see, especially when they play taps. And you have to speak next, and you're not sure if you can see the people in front of you. And yet, there's a calmness and a peace, because I know all the cask was holding was a shell. I know where my Lord is. My, my Father is with the Lord. That is comforting. Those are God's promises. We can rest assured of that. But we're mortal. And unless Jesus comes first, and I'm still angling for that, you can come you can come before I finish the sermon. I don't need, do I have to finish the sermon? No, let's, let's just finish it off on the way up, okay? <laughs> Unless he comes, well, we're going to have physical death. Are we ready for it? So that's part of that second rhetorical question. Even the prophets are going to die. But he is faithful and his word continues on regardless of what happens to us humans. So anybody who's self-righteous thinking they're going to be exempt from God's judgment needs to think again. God's word and his statutes apply to everyone. Be sure you're walking with God. That's the message he's giving to them. Return to Yahweh and he will return to you. Now though we who are Gentiles are not part of God's covenant with Israel, there's an application here that applies to us. Because God is faithful to his own character. He blesses those who humble themselves and will walk with him. And he curses those who are proud and defy him. And there are consequences to sin. That is the point in 1 Corinthians 10. So we who are living need to heed the examples of those who have gone before us. Their examples are written down in the pages of scripture. Avoid their sins. That chapter specifically points out their idolatry, their immorality, their grumbling, and their craving for evil things. Instead, we need to be those who are going to flee from temptation. God always provides a way of escape. And instead, pursue righteousness. Now, Feinberg, in his commentary, points out five great principles of Zechariah's first message from Yahweh, which I think are worthy to recount to you. Here they are. Return to Yahweh is the condition of all of God's blessings, verse 3. Disobedience to Yahweh is evil and brings peril, verse 4. The word of Yahweh is unchangeable. God deals with people according to their deeds, and God's immutable purposes will be accomplished. So that's just from that first six verses. Let's take a look at uh, the first couple night visions. Okay, his initial exhortation is followed three months later with eight visions all received in one night, which chapter 1 verse 7 states was, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came to Zechariah, the prophet, the son of Berechai, the son of Ido, saying, and then it goes on with this vision. Now the precise dating here, it works out to be February 24th, 1519 B.C. It's slightly unusual because 
most of the time, prophecies are, if they're dated, maybe by a year or maybe by a month, but not necessarily to the day. In fact, even in, um, in Zechariah, only half of them have an exact date. The others are toward a month or just, or the last two are not even dated. Now, MacArthur points out that the 24th shows up in a couple of other prophecies related to this building the temple. So that would be a reminder to people, oh yeah, that was said just a couple months ago. It was on the 24th of the sixth month that the reconstruction of the temple began. That's Haggai 1.15. It's 24th day of the ninth month that the word of the Lord came to Haggai to encourage Israel to persevere in their obedience. Haggai 2.10. Exactly two months later, five months after the building of the temple began, is when these visions are given to Zechariah. Again, to encourage them, continue the work, for God is going to honor them for their obedience. He is going to strengthen them to be able to complete that task because all of it was according to his will. Now MacArthur points out as well that these eight visions are given in a chiastic format in which there are parallel thoughts. You basically work from the outside inward. So the first and eighth vision are parallel. The second and the seventh are parallel. The third and the sixth are parable. And the uh, third and fourth are parallel. So they're parallel thoughts. Let me give you what, what those are. First, God remembers the state of his plans and with the first vision of the horses, declaring that God has not forgotten his promise and the eighth of the four chariots, assuring the promise is going to be implemented. So they parallel in thought. Yah remembers his promises concerning the nations with the second vision, the horns and smiths, and giving a broad overview of his plan. And the seventh vision, the woman and the... Uh, Ifa is giving specific plans dealing with their wickedness. So again, parallel, but you're working toward the center. Yahweh remembers his promise for restoration of his people and the judgments related to it in the third vision of the surveyor and in the sixth vision of the flying scroll, chapter 5. Yahweh remembers his promise concerning Messiah in the fifth vision of Joshua and the angel and the sixth vision of the candlestick and the two olive trees. That's the center and that's the point of emphasis. It's Messiah. There's a promised one coming, an anointed one who will be there in the future. Messiah is the priest king that's going to intercede and cleanse his people and who will also mediate the glory of God through Israel to the world. That's the center of these visions. So we're going to take a look at the first two of these today and then next week we'll cover the rest of them and see if we get it even into chapter 7 or 8. Now the vision of the horses, one reason I'm not going to deal with the details, we read through this, you can see some of it gets like, huh? <laughs> what is he talking about? And I'm not interested in all those details, I'm more interested in what is the thrust of this so we can understand what's coming in the future. Look at verse 8, Zechariah chapter 1. I saw at night, and behold, a man was riding on a red horse, and he was standing among the myrtle trees, which were in the ravine, with red sorrel and white horses behind him. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? And the angel who was speaking with me said to me, I will show you what these are. And the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are those whom Yahweh has sent to patrol the earth. So they answered the angel of Yahweh, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold... All the earth is sitting still and quiet. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Yahweh of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? 
with which you've been indignant these 70 years. Yahweh answered the angel who was speaking with me with good words, comforting words. And so the angel who was speaking with me said to me, Call out, saying, Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, but I am very wrathful with the nations who are at ease. For I was only a little wrathful, but they helped increase the calamity. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. Again call out, saying, thus says Yahweh of hosts, my cities will again overflow with good, and Yahweh will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, I'll leave it to others to debate about the meaning and significance of each element of visions, but I will point out a few of the significant things so you can understand the basic meaning of this vision. The man standing among the myrtle trees in verse 10 is the angel of Yahweh. That's verse 12, specifically designated that. The angel of Yahweh throughout the Hebrew scriptures is a reference to the pre-incarnate Messiah. It's Jesus before the incarnation. The angel speaking to Zechariah in verses 13, 14 could be referred to as the interpreting angel because that's what that angel is doing. The four horses and riders that are patrolling the earth, verse 10, they serve the Lord by going to and fro throughout it and assessing the condition of the earth or conditions on earth, which here they state are sitting still and quiet. It's peaceful. It's serene. Not a lot of, no, nothing really bad is going on. The earth seems to be at rest. Now, normally we think, well, that sounds good, right? Wouldn't we like that right now? The earth to be peaceful and serene? Well, that probably would be good, but as actually the angel of Yahweh points out, the cities of Judah are still in ruin. And these are the nations that caused it. That sparks the comment that Yahweh was indignant. They've been in ruin for 70 years. He's going to punish those nations. They're not going to stay at rest. There is going to be consequences to what you have done to my people. You may have peace now, but it's not going to stay that way because God is faithful. He remembers what he has promised. Now here that also includes the gracious words and the comfort because there is now a a proclamation of his jealousy for Jerusalem and Zion. So the anger toward these nations currently at ease was due to the great excess that they brought upon his people. As he states here, I was only a little angry, and then they compounded the problem. And so they're going to be punished. And that will figure into some of the other visions that Zechariah receives. But notice here that there are words of compassion as well in this vision. A promise to return to Jerusalem, and he is going to have his house built there again. The city is going to be repopulated, and it's going to be prosperous again. Now, that's a great message of hope, because remember, what are they doing in historical context? They just started on the work of trying to rebuild the temple again. And yes, there are things coming against them to discourage them from doing it, but they've started. Now, if you were in that situation, wouldn't that be encouraging to you when you find that the God... Uh, whom you worship is saying is you're going to accomplish it and it's not just going to be you're going to get this one building done is your progeny it's going to be prosperous you're going to see this city filled again 
like it was in previous times when your forefathers walked with God. That's the first vision. A message of encouragement to them, as well as a warning to the other nations. You're at ease, but it's not going to stay that way. The next vision immediately follows the first one, Zechariah 1, 18 through 21. It says this, Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, there were four horns. And so I said to the angel who was speaking with me, What are these? And he said to me, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then Yahweh showed me four craftsmen. And I said, What are these coming to do? He said, These are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. And these craftsmen have come to cause them to tremble, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. Now horns are characteristically throughout the Hebrew scriptures symbols of strength. And in this vision that specifically is stated to be uh, the nations that had scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now there are many nations that oppressed Israel at different times. Sometimes even deporting portions of the population. Assyria, as I mentioned earlier, conquered the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. and deported them. Babylon conquered and deported the southern tribes, Judah, in 605, 598, and 586, finally destroying Jerusalem and the temple the last time. The Jews were scattered among the Medo, in the, within the Medo-Persian Empire, and Cyrus allowed a return in 598 B.C., but only a small amount did. Now, all those events occurred prior to the time of this vision. In the future, there was going to be the time of Esther, when Haman plotted to have all the Jews destroyed, but the plan was exposed and he was thwarted. War between the Seleucids and Ptolemies in the Greek Empire often resulted in the oppression of the Jews because they're in the middle. Powerful country, powerful country, you're in the middle, guess what you're in? Trouble. Okay? Constant war, constantly oppressed by them. The Romans would conquer the Greeks and then they would destroy the nation, Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD as part of the conclusion of the suppression of the Jewish revolt that began in 66 AD. However, the context here is closely tied to Daniel. And remember, Daniel is a prophet whom they would have known. Daniel was alive when the first return came. They would have known his prophecies. And so this is closely tied to the prophecies of uh, Daniel in Daniel 2 and 7. So the four horns probably are a reference to those four nations. It would be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and the time of Gentiles. It also means this vision covers a time from its present to the distant future. Now the second part of this vision involves craftsmen. Now a craftsman is someone who is skilled in working in wood, stone, or metal. Now here the craftsmen are specifically referred to as the horns which have scattered Judah. Yet they're also going to terrify and throw down the horn of the nations that lifted themselves up against Judah. Again, as explained in the prophecies of Daniel, though Babylon is the first nation in that series, it lifted itself up, it became proud, it humiliated Judah, destroyed it, but it in turn would be humiliated by the next nation which would lift itself up, become proud and arrogant, but it would then be humiliated by the next nation. 
So Babylon is conquered and humiliated by Medo-Persian. The city falls in one night. There was a siege going on for a while, but the whole city fell in one night. They were proud. They didn't think they could get in, and they did. Medo-Persia was then terrified and thrown down by Greece, very quickly by Alexander the Great. And then the Grecian empires, now split into four different groups, Seleucus and Ptolemies were both humiliated by Rome, crushed. But that's four horns, but only three craftsmen. Who's the fourth? Well, again, we go back to the prophecies in Daniel. Daniel 2.35 is, in that prophecy, is this is the stone that is cut out from a mountain without hands. And it crushes the Roman kingdom and then becomes a mountain itself that is everlasting. In Daniel 7, this is the Ancient of Days who gives to the Son of Man dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Again, they would have known these prophecies because Daniel was not that long ago. So the vision would have been an encouragement to that remnant working to rebuild the temple to know Yahweh remembers. He is going to carry out his retribution on the nations that have oppressed and scattered the Jews. And he is going to fulfill the prophecies in which the future Messiah is going to reign over the earth forever. Well, those same promises are encouragement to us too, aren't they? Are we not looking forward to as well for the coming reign of Messiah? To straighten things out on the earth and even more so for eventually for eternity, to be spent with him, the troubles of this life no more, all of them past, Messiah reigning. And so these are encouragements to us as well. So next week I will cover the rest of Zechariah's night visions, which encourage this remnant in rebuilding the temple, but it encourages us with the same truths. And if you take nothing else away from this sermon, take away these two thoughts. Yahweh remembers, and he will keep every single one of his promises. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word and the truths, some that have not yet been fulfilled in prophecy, but truths nonetheless that we can stand firm on. And so though we see turmoil around us, we don't like the way things are going. We see the the nations, the world in turmoil, yet we know what is coming in the future. And Father, we're looking forward to that time, regardless of what trouble and tribulation will exist between now and then, that Jesus Christ reigns. He wins. And so we are always going to be encouraged. Father, our desire is simply to be faithful, like these workmen were so long ago, and trusting your promise for the future is that we will fulfill our part, whatever it is that you call us to do, and laboring for your kingdom, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.